The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. We begin with a poem by Irish writer Seamus Heaney. Once we presumed to found ourselves for good between its blue hills and those sandless shores where we spent our desperate night in prayer and vigil. Once we had gathered driftwood, made a hearth and hung our cauldron in its firmament, the island broke beneath us like a wave. The land sustaining us seemed to hold firm only when we embraced it in extremis. All I believe that happened there was vision. That poem is called The Disappearing Island, and like so much of Heaney's work, it's rooted in the land. Heaney grew up on a small farm owned and worked by his father, and working the earth is essential to the Heanian corpus. Ireland, that gleaming literary jewel, claims for itself four Nobel Prize winners for literature, and some of its most revered writers never won. George Bernard Shaw, William Butler Yeats, Samuel Beckett, and Seamus Heaney were winners. Oscar Wilde, James Joyce, Bram Stoker, C.S. Lewis, and William Trevor never did. And yet... Look at those Irish writers again, Joyce in exile, Wilde in London, Lewis in Oxford, Trevor in Devon, England. Ireland, Joyce famously had his hero say, is the old sow that eats her pharaoh. The questions of home and homeland is complicated for Irish writers, and for northern Irish writers, the complexity is doubled. The island broke beneath us like a wave. I called Seamus Heaney an Irish writer, which he was, but he was also a northern Irish writer. Living through hard times and possessing a state of mind, living in a world where politics and borders and identity intrude on the everyday life experience. Or do they? What does it mean to be in a world divided and shared? Is it black and white, or here it's black and there it's white and never the twain shall meet? Or all one big shade of gray? Or are the blacks and whites on a grid like a chessboard, and the people like pieces sliding from one square to another? Maybe moving, maybe holding fast, maybe anticipating an attack, maybe pinned in place by circumstance. We'll talk to the author of a new book about the writers of Northern Ireland today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. The Writers of Northern Ireland with Alexander Boots. Actually, the book is called The Stranger's House, Writing Northern Ireland. 
This is a fascinating topic. It's hard for me to fully get my mind around it, living as I do here in the States, but Alexander has done the hard thinking for us and is here to share some of the results. I love Ireland. I always feel good when I'm there. I hope to go back soon, maybe explore more of the North than I have so far. In the meantime, we have these great writers to read and a great tour to take, thanks to Alexander's book. And of course, the conversation we have with him today. We'll have some literary news as our appetizer, and then our guest, and then a fine dessert. We're going to hear from Laura Lee, speaking of Ireland. She's been here a couple of times to talk about Oscar Wilde. Will something by Wilde make her list for the last book she will ever choose to read? Stay tuned. Okay, literary news. Actually, this one is is kind of news. It's kind of a request. We're going to talk about awe. There's a new book by a writer named Datcher Keltner that is all about the feeling of awe. The book is called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. It's one of those books that people read and it reminds them of what it means to be here on this crazy planet in this vast, wondrous universe made out of stardust as we all are. I mean, most of the time we go through life basically in a daze, don't we? Thinking about one or two things like how many more years do I need to work at this crummy job? Or why is there so much traffic today? Or or, damn, hot again, hate this weather. We think those thoughts over and over and over. They parade through our minds. And the thought like, I cannot believe I am made out of electrons spinning around protons, and I'm standing here under this blue sky, breathing in molecules, because this place happened to be perfect for a life force just like me to come into being, and beyond this atmosphere is an infinite universe with gazillions of stars, and it's expanding in a way that feels even bigger than how I... how how big I usually imagine God to be, so whatever God is must be even bigger than that and older. And there's a huge amount of energy stored in a single tiny atom. That's a lot of energy just on our planet alone, let alone all the other planets, to say nothing of the stars, which are like giant burning infernos of nuclear explosions on and on. I have that thought about once a year, if I remember to stop and think about it, how incredible it all is. I have the thought about why do I always come downstairs without my headphones when I told myself six times not to forget them upstairs this time, so I have to go back upstairs to retrieve them. I have that thought just about every single day. (laughs) You You might, speaking of awe, you might say my perpetual forgetfulness. It's awe-inspiring. Maybe that fills you with awe, and in that, I guess you might be right. But really, compared with us living on this spinning planet encircling the sun, it's really nothing. Or in comparison with Picasso's Guernica, or Beethoven's Ninth, or Emily Dickinson's poetry, it's nothing. Or the ocean, or waterfalls, or the light that appears in the magic hour, the drops of dew on the blades of grass the trees with roots that start to move underground. They start to change direction before they encounter an object. 
they somehow know the object is there and they start to bend and move to avoid it before they even touch it. They can communicate with one another. Trees do. We're learning more about that. That's an incredible, it, that fills me with awe. Tree consciousness. It's not the same as human consciousness, to be sure. But who knows? Maybe it's just as good, maybe just as impressive in its own way. Here's how Datcher Keltner defines awe. Quote, awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. Let me repeat that because I'm going to ask you to tell me about your experiences with awe, and I'm going to tell you how you can do that. And in particular, I'm going to ask if you've ever felt it when reading literature, fiction, or poetry, or I guess plays, or watching films couldn't work too. Have you ever felt this quality? Awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. Now let's unpack that. The vastness can be physical, like seeing the Grand Canyon or being at a concert as the music passes through you, or it can be challenging, mentally exposing you an idea you haven't had before. We know we get it from nature, from looking up at the sky and the stars, or from contemplating the beauty of, of a flower. We know we get it from art. That's the Sistine Chapel, isn't it? The Taj Mahal. Have you ever gotten it from a book or a body of work by a certain author or by a line in a poem or a favorite passage in a novel? Tell me those times, if they've happened, when you felt you were in the presence of something vast that transcended your understanding of the world in a literary context. Has this happened to you? What were you reading? How did you feel? I want to hear about it. And then here's how you can tell me. You can write it up and send it in an email to historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk your way through it, record a voice memo or other audio file and send it to me at that email address, historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com. Or, and this is brand new, you can go to historyofliterature.com and click a tab on the right-hand side of the page that says, send us a voicemail and record it right there on your computer. You will have 120 seconds to tell us all about your awe-filled experiences with literature. Once again, that's at historyofliterature.com or an email to historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com. And the feeling of awe is defined as being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. Frankly, I'm not sure we're going to get any of these. I know you guys love <laughs> I know you guys love books, but that criteria has a high bar. I hope you've felt awe from your reading experiences, but it's it's going to be hard to compete with, let's say, walking into a cathedral or taking a bite of lemon meringue pie, but we will see. Okay, let's turn back to Northern Ireland now. I won't define it because that's what the conversation's going to be about. We'll have a quick run-through of the history of Northern Ireland and then get to its writers, Alexander Poots, after this.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is author Alexander Poots, who was born in London in 1985. He studied at the University of Manchester and Oxford, then worked as a bookseller. He now lives in Belfast. He's here today to discuss his first book, The Stranger's House, which tells us all about the writers of Northern Ireland. Alexander Poots, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I'll confess at the outset, I'm a little apprehensive. I feel like I'm about to discuss Israel or the Middle East or something, and I don't know the history as well as I should, and I'm worried I might inadvertently state something controversial without realizing I've landed on that one side or the other. So why don't I let you do the talking and kind of set the ground rules here for what we're talking about? First of all, what do you mean by Northern Ireland? Yeah, well, um, in many ways, the book, I think, is an exploration of that question. And mm. I, um, I've chosen uh, a group of writers who I think bring various different answers to the table in mm. that respect. It's probably worth saying that Northern Ireland, as it's commonly understood, constitutes about, I mean, it's less than a quarter, really, of the island of Ireland. Um, it's probably about a fifth of the landmass, maybe mm. a little bit more. It's a very small place. And it constitutes just six counties. And it's got its origins in really go right the way back to the very early 17th century, when at that point, the northernmost portion of Ireland, the province of Ulster, had been giving the British crown a lot of problems. Uh, there were, it was probably at that time the most rebellious portion of the island. And as was the want in the early uh, 17th century, as, as an American, you'll know this very well, the, the idea of plantation mm. and of colonization as a tool of control and, and pacification was very much in vogue, of course, at that time. And so the, the crown solution was to offer Scots and English land in Ulster 
and all they had to do was move there and they'd get nice little parcels of land. Mm. They also offered up much larger, larger estates to nobles, effectively, to try and, in, and encourage them to move over. But their job once there really was to hold and subdue the province of Ulster for the crown. Mm. Now, fast forward uh, a few centuries and what you then had were two quite different communities living side by side. You had the descendants of the original planters who by now in many ways they'd been living in the north of Ireland for centuries and had developed their own distinctive culture which is a blend of uh, Scottish, English and Irish cultures. But then you also had the descendants of those original inhabitants who had been displaced. And so therein, really, you have the origins of the conflict, which reach its most famous expression in what's now known as the Troubles, that period, mm. roughly between 1969 and 1997. Though, I mean, it's it's incredibly crude to put dates on it like that, and I, I don't really like doing it, but uh, I'll do so now for the sake of clarity. So that's the history in a, in a nutshell. So another key date is, I understand it would be 1921 in the partition. When you were choosing the writers, were you going back into the 20th century? Did you go back before then or did you start in the time of the Troubles? So the first two writers I deal with in the book are C.S. Lewis and mm. Forrest Reed, both of whom were born in Belfast in the late 19th century. Lewis was born in 1898 and Reed in the 1870s. So they were born into Ireland. When they were born, a place called Northern Ireland certainly didn't exist. Um, but it was an Ireland rather different from the one we know today. It was much like Wales or Scotland or at to be fair, England are today, that was a constituent portion of the United Kingdom and by extension at that point of the British Empire. But the events of the First World War and the other varying pressures, not least a, a resurgent nationalist movement within Ireland, when the British government finally decided it was time to get out of Ireland, um, they were faced with a, a problem. And I suppose in some ways, a problem of the British state's own making, which is essentially that you now had a very large proportion of people in the north who were largely in favour of remaining within the United Kingdom. And because of their origins in England and Scotland, uh, tended to be Protestants as opposed to the overwhelming majority of Irish people who were, of course, Catholic. Mm. Uh, and those people didn't want the UK to withdraw from Ireland. That created a, a big problem. First, they realised that the powers that be in Westminster were probably quite happy to abandon them. And this worried them greatly because they feared irrelevance in the new Ireland, I suppose. And they also, the North was probably arguably the only part of Ireland that had significantly industrialised. So the big factories uh, were largely staffed by Protestant workers and the linen mills tended to be owned by Protestant merchants. And so there was this whole Protestant culture which felt itself to be under threat and they weren't really going to accept the UK leaving them behind. So a group of them formed the initial Ulster Volunteer Force, which was a, an armed group. They actually smuggled in arms from 
Kaiser Wilhelm's Germany in a strange Protestant prefiguring of the smuggling in of arms by the provisional IRA decades later from Libya and the United States. And the British government realized that actually, if they simply left without recognizing the fact that much of the north of Ireland wasn't happy to be left behind, as it were, potentially violence would ensue. And there were there were also a number of very powerful voices within the parliament at Westminster who argued for the retention of this small segment of the island, not least among them Sir Edward Carson. Eventually, it was decided that the way around this was to partition the island of Ireland so that mm. the northern Protestants would have their little statelets and they could carry on theoretically as before. And then the south of Ireland could go its own way as they wish to do. Now, I mean, as all as is always the case with compromises, I suppose that basically pleased nobody and things got worse as time went on. But that partition comes in in uh, May 1921. Initially, the the border was designed. It's a, it's a very strange border. When you look it up on a map, part of that is simply due to topographical realities. This is a very hilly place full of little streams. So that's part of the reason why the border is so higgledy-piggledy. But it was also quite cynically designed to exclude large parts of the local area which were heavily Catholic because the, the people that designed Northern Ireland from the ground up were very keen that a Protestant majority would endure in perpetuity to to avoid any future problems in terms of power struggles between the, the two communities. So in 1921, you have a situation where the population is overwhelmingly Protestant and Unionist. And that situation really only changed last year, where the results of the 2021 census came in, which showed for the very first time um, people who identify as Catholic and Irish outnumber those who identify as Protestant and mm. Unionist British in the census. Right. So given the fluidity of these borders and of the culture and that so much of this is two different peoples living side by side, so to speak, how did you decide whether a writer qualified as Northern Irish and belonged in the book? It's not as if you have, a say, a, a Northern Irish passport holder uh, <laughs> would be the uh, qualification. So did you look at where they grew up or where they set their works or mm. where they lived or it must have been kind of a, a sliding scale, so to speak? Yeah, there were two considerations, really. The first was birthplace, because none of us get to choose where we're born. And whatever our political affiliations, where you're born is where you're born. And that's mm -hmm. it. So that was certainly the first. But the second was, I mean, there have been there have been many writers from Northern Ireland who don't deal with the various political and cultural issues of this place mm -hmm. um, at all. So the, the second qualification was that they had something substantive to say about a situation on the ground, as it were. There's one notable exception to the birthplace rule, however, which I was expecting a bit more eyebrows 
to be raised in in reviews about this, but that doesn't seem to have happened. But the poet Patrick Kavanagh, who mm. is in fact born in County Monaghan, which whilst one of the original counties which constitute the ancient province of Ulster, is actually south of the border. But I wanted him in there for two reasons. First was that he was an enormous influence on Seamus Heaney amongst others. But secondly, as a recognition that Northern Ireland is not necessarily the north of Ireland. And anyone familiar with a map of Ireland will know, for example, that the most northerly points on the island are in County Donegal, which is, of course, in the Republic. Mm. But um, I wanted someone like Kavanagh in there as a representative of that sundered Ulster, if you will. Right. Did these uh, writers self-identify as Northern Irish? Is that part of their the way they view themselves do they view themselves as as irish or as simply you know i'm a poet of the world or i'm or do they identify with being part of the united kingdom or how do they tend to view themselves i think the only tendency really is towards an intense individualism about mm. how any mm-hmm. of them would a- answer that question yeah the uh, people like C.S. Lewis, for example, who ironically now most people think was was English. Yeah, um, right. Someone like him, I mean, he, he was perfectly content to call himself Irish because I think partly he grew up in a unionist Protestant milieu, which was actually, although it feared for the future, it was it was pretty secure in its own understanding of its place in the world. Um, and certainly when someone like Lewis goes to Oxford, he talks very freely about meeting undergraduates who were fellow Irishmen. Mm. So for someone like Lewis, it was very, very clear that he was Irish. The same is true of Lou McNeese, who was always quite proud of being Irish, despite the fact that he and Lewis sounded like me rather than Bertie Ahern or whatever. Mm. Um, Later on, things get far more complex and certainly during the troubles really you'd have to approach that on a on a case-by-case basis there's a very famous quote from the poet john hewitt who was a very famous poet belfast poet who went on a massive sort of tangent about first and foremost he was from ulster but he was perfectly comfortable being called either british or irish and beyond all that he was a european anyway and i'm paraphrasing there but he he was perfectly happy to play with the idea of multiple identities. And as was Heaney, who was pretty resistant, actually, to any kind of categorization. I think he recognized that whilst he was first and foremost Irish, the the fact remained that being from the North carried with it its own particular set of problems surrounding identity, which his counterparts in Dublin or Cork simply didn't have to deal with. Okay, so let's back up for a moment and talk about you. I'm wondering where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in London. My dad is from Belfast. Mm, mm -hmm. And my mom is a Scot. We don't have any Welsh ancestry in the family, but that's pretty much the only part of the UK (laughs) that isn't in me somewhere. Yeah. Were you reading these authors as a child or was your father kind of putting these books in your hands or did that come later? 
It came later. I think as a as a child, I remember uh, quite vividly my dad trying to interest me in Heaney. But uh, I mm. think he maybe came too early. At that point, I was far more interested in the, the sharp novels of Bernard Cornwell, which, as it happens, which I'm not sure if they're widely read in the States, but they're set in the Napoleonic Wars right. in any case. But the Richard Sharp, who's a, a rifleman, his sidekick throughout the books is Sergeant Patrick Harper, who is from County Donegal. So, you know, there there was a bit of the north of Ireland in my uh, early reading, definitely. <laughs> but no, I think really, actually, it was in my mid-20s, really, I, I started to really engage more with Northern Irish literature or literature from the north of Ireland, depending on who you're talking to. And that happened really because I was I was working as a bookseller at the time in central London, and I was in charge of the history section in the, the bookstore where I worked. And it always struck me that the Irish history section, you'd have shelf after shelf groaning with books on the troubles. And then if you took a walk over to the poetry section or the literary criticism section, there'd be, of course, enormous amounts of slim volumes of verse from Paul Muldoon and uh, Seamus Heaney, Patrick Kavanagh, Maeve McGuckian, Sinead Morrissey. And it, it just struck me as peculiar that there wasn't a book that was trying to bridge the gap, I mm. suppose, between mm-hmm. those two things. Initially, I tried to find it because uh, I thought that must exist. I must try and order some copies in. And it slowly dawned on me that really it, it doesn't exist. Now, of course, academics have written on this subject, contextualizing poets and their work is big academic business. But the problem with that is that it is academic writing. Mm-hmm. It's it's not necessarily the kind of stuff that that mysterious creature, the general reader, will A, be able to access easily and B, particularly enjoy reading once they've got it in their hands. So that's where the idea for the book originated, really. And that was probably over a decade ago now, really, that the the germ of the idea first hit me. And I've been reading around the subject ever since. Right. And what took you to Belfast? When I, when 12 said, yes, Alex, you can write this book for us, I was delighted. I was actually working as a dishwasher in Montreal at the time, very glamorous position. (laughs) And I'd sort of realized I'd reached the end of my time in Quebec, beautiful though it is. And I felt that if this was a book I was going to take seriously. I, I needed to to be in Northern Ireland to write it. Um, I'd, I'd been over with my dad many times before, but visiting a place, especially with a parent, you know, is, is not the same as, as living mm. there. Mm-hmm. So I made the move. Um, that was about four and a half years ago now. But it's one of the few decisions in my life where I'm 100% confident I made the right one. I mean, as you can imagine, I've read enormous numbers of books on Northern Ireland now. And there is this intangible disparity between the people that write on this place who who live here and those that don't. And it's really, really interesting to me. I think in order to, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I still regard myself as 
what over here they call a blow-in, you know, a sort of a an Aravis, the foreigner. But I I feel I've learnt an enormous amount about the subtleties and nuance of this place that um, I simply couldn't have done just by sitting in a library in London or Montreal. Um, I do think you need to you need to be here. You need to chat with people. You need to go on dates. It's all of that sort of stuff. The often unspoken complexities of this place really come into play. And, and I think you need to have a bit of a, a taste of that um, if you're going to write about this place with any degree of fidelity. Hmm. I would think, too, that much of what you are probably finding in Belfast is that the generations have grown up with things differently, that you you could almost excavate like a, a an archaeologist mm. going through the fossil record or something. You'd see that someone who was born in 1980 would have had a much different experience from someone who was born in 1960 from 1940 uh-huh. and, and so on. Does the history bear down on everyday life? Do you feel like the the people are exhausted or hopeful or is there any general conclusions you can make or is it really individual by individual it is individual by individual and um, i've met people who are in their 20s who have spoken to me as if it's 1972 Hmm. you do meet people who clearly that is a product of their own lives. And it's not for me to say they uh, shouldn't feel the way that they feel. But um, I think there's been an enormous amount of press attention around Northern Ireland recently, because of course, Biden visited and the Clintons are over for the anniversary of the Good Friday Mm. Agreement. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've just been struck by a lot of the press coverage, which strikes me as incredibly naive at points, because whilst I think the fact that there has been a, a fraught piece here for 25 years now. There, those wounds have barely scabbed over, it seems mm-hmm. to me. And yeah, as I say, I, I've met people from all sorts of different walks of life. And certainly I met both people from the nationalist side of the debate and at the other end, unionist side. Where, as I say, you would, to talk to them, you think it was still in the 70s. But having said that, there is the vast majority of people who I've met and spoken to do seem to occupy that hopeful middle ground. Mm. But I suppose the people I really remember are the ones that have held perhaps slightly more fringe positions. I mean, I remember last summer I was in the pub with friends and a group of guys came over and one of them, on hearing my accent, sort of took the time to inform me with great solemnity that he was, and I quote, a massive Republican. And it's very, very interesting to me as an outsider that on hearing my accent, he clearly felt the need to kind of draw that line in the sand and let me know who he was and what he was about. And uh, it wasn't done in a in an aggressive way or anything. But I, I did find it very, very interesting that he felt the need to peacock in that way, I suppose. Mm, right. He works in quite a, a middle class industry as well. It's, it's often said that the really hardcore sectarianism tends to be a product of communities which 
suffer from deprivation and and multi-generational unemployment and that's absolutely true but it's but there's more to it than that so uh, it's, it's interesting but you asked me about the generations i i will say in my experience it's actually people from older generations who look back on everything and just acknowledge the general tragedy of it. Mm-hmm. I And of course, those are the generations that lived through it. I think, in my experience anyway, and I'm just one person wandering around Belfast, so I'm not, I'm not claiming that my, my position is the, the only one, but in my experience, you're far more likely to hear quite extreme political statements coming from people who were born on or around the Good Friday Agreement. That's certainly been my experience um, anyway. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back and talk more about your book. Okay, we are back. So when you set out to write this book, Stranger's House, it sounds like you knew a lot of the writers that you would expect to be placing in there from your work as a bookseller. But did you also have a set of themes that you were expecting to touch upon? And how similar or different is the end product to what you thought you were going to write when you were starting out? Well, as I say, I think because I'd been you know, the idea for this book came to me a long time ago. And so I knew that in many ways, the big theme was going to be that of the land. Mm. I would say certainly one of the things that unites certainly most of the poets I talk about in the book is this preoccupation with the land. Because of course, the land in many ways is the source of so many of the problems that have dogged this region for the last few hundred years, um, i.e. this is a contest over the land, Mm -hmm. over the best land. This is a tiny part of the world and there isn't enough land to go around. Certainly back when this was largely an agricultural economy, uh, that was the number one problem at all times. But the land also attains a kind of darker significance, I think, as well. Once you hit the troubles, you have people being abducted from their homes by the provisional IRA and murdered and then buried in shallow graves all over Mm. Northern Ireland and south of the border as well. And so the land, therefore, becomes a kind of a repository of, of horror as well. And while someone like Seamus Heaney writes with enormous affection about the landscapes that he knew as a boy on a farm in County Derry, equally in his collection North, he spends a lot of time exploring the bog bodies which were excavated in Ireland, these victims of early medieval ritual sacrifice who have been preserved by the acid peat for a thousand years or so. He has these bog bodies talking and recounting what they remember from 
their former lives, even in one at one point complaining about being unearthed by a careless farmer and an enthusiastic archaeology team. So the land is both an inspiration, but it's also a memory bank and it's mm. a kind of a very tragic memorial as well. Mm-hmm. So that's the main thread, I think, in the book. But I did stumble really as while I was writing on this notion of of homesickness, which is something I found myself reminded of constantly when reading these poets and novelists. This constant feeling that although this was their birthplace, they could never be quite sure whether it was their home. And what I mean by that is there's that lack of security because growing up in an environment where you have immense disorder, immense disruption and uncertainty, um, in the early days of the Troubles, whole neighbourhoods shifting. So people having to pack up in an afternoon and hightail it to a different area because they were no longer welcome on their own street. Again and again, I I felt that this was something that links not all, but but a great many of the the writers I talk about in the book. Um, Heaney has a poem, Disappearing Island, which I open the book with, and there's this great line in it, the island disappeared beneath us like a wave. There's always that sense of what should be solid Hmm. actually drops away beneath you like a step missed in the dark. And I do feel that that sense of that lack of certainty about what tomorrow will bring certainly feeds into how secure you feel in your own home, in your own life. And I do think that's bled into much of the writing that has come out of this region over the past 50 years or so. Mm. The other side of that coin, I guess, is exile. So it can feel like there's physical, literal exile of someone who is no longer allowed to live where they consider home, but then there's the exile kind of of the mind where your home has been taken away from you and you feel like you're a stranger, even though you're maybe living not far from where you would expect to live. Yeah, absolutely. And I find it very moving. It's very affecting. The poet Maeve McGuckian has spoken in an interview about she has two homes, one in West Belfast and the other in a, a seaside town in the North Coast. And she talks about how whenever she travels up to her little house on the sea for a weekend in the summer, she imagines this tiny little corridor linking her home in West Belfast to her little place by the sea. And that's the source of a little thread of safety and security that links the two homes. But beyond that, it's all to play for, really. And it's the fragility of that I find so moving, I think, because, of course, that little corridor could be snapped at any time, really. Yeah. While everything we've talked about might be, it's kind of a negative for the people who are living through it. But from the perspective of writers and great writing, you could see where this kind of atmosphere could produce some great writing. It's sort of the classic of the, the new kid at the high school who's able to be both an insider and see everything, but also observe from the outside. And I mean, Ireland in general is always punched above its weight, so to speak. Uh, and I think a lot mm. of that is having that kind of insider-outsider status. And 
it seems like Northern Ireland would be an even greater example of that, able to see the UK and the Republic of Ireland from both within and from without. Is that what you see, or does it seem like everything that Northern Ireland has gone through has become kind of a, a heavy weight that has impaired or or limited what the writers have been able to explore, that, that there's a big topic that they can't get around? Um, I suspect it must be something of a millstone, especially if you're a young writer, if you're a 25-year-old today writing your first novel. I suppose that would be something you'd have to consider. I would be very surprised if there isn't someone in Belfast at this very moment happily typing out a sort of a Nora Ephron-style romantic comedy, Mm -hmm. which maybe happens to be set in Belfast, but has absolutely nothing to do with with the Troubles. I certainly hope that's the case. I think you're bang on in terms of that strange liminal status that the North has. It is fascinating because, of course, the, the other problem they have is that neither Westminster nor Dublin particularly wants to have to deal with Northern Ireland. Mm. And so over the next few decades, when the prospect of unification will become more and more real, that's only going to intensify, really. But the dark truth, in terms of your initial question about the kind of the literary fecundity here, I, I do think that There is a dark truth about conflict and creativity. Certainly on this side of the pond, the only other period I can think of where you have such a rush of excellent poetry is the First World War, Mm. um, where I won't say from nowhere, but from a rather moribund Edwardian literary culture, you suddenly get this explosion of extraordinary poetry, arguably the birth of the modernist movement as well. So there is something to that, I think, that connection between conflict and creativity, simply because this is a horribly crude way to put it, but I I do think it it forces you to up your game, really. Mm -hmm. I closed the book on Michael Longley's poem, Kinder Tortenlieder, which translates as Songs for Dead Children. And that's a poem he wrote about uh, a young boy that was killed by a policeman who fired a machine gun into a into a block of flats, and uh, was was found guilty of doing so as well from the ballistic evidence, um, by the way. And Longley has spoken about the difficulties surrounding the decision to write poems like that because burying your head in the sand isn't really good enough. I mean, what is poetry for Mm -hmm. if you can't use it to address the darkest, the very darkest moments in human experience? But on the other hand, you don't want to seem like someone who is trying to, in some horrible way, use the pain of others as fuel for your art or as as inspiration or a kind of literary profiteering. And that's something that's felt very keenly by all of the the poets that were writing through the Troubles, Um, Heaney, of course, but Derek Mahan as well, Mm. and Maeve McGuckian and and a host of others. So how did you approach the book, it's not an encyclopedia of names and facts and dates, but more of a narrative. How would you characterize the project? Well, I know what I like in nonfiction. And what I like in nonfiction is either a 
a short book that takes you by the hand and leads you through and shows you some interesting things and teaches you something and then lets you out gently the other side. And that's what I like in nonfiction. And that's what I tried to do with this book for the readers to decide whether or not I succeeded. But I wouldn't say the way I chose to do it was necessarily dictated by the subject matter. It was actually more sort of rather airy-fairy thoughts I've had over years as a bookseller about what I want from nonfiction and and what I dislike, uh, which if I want to read turgid tomes, I can go to my local university library and (laughs) fill up my library card. But if I'm browsing in a bookstore and I want an interesting book to read for half an hour before I turn the lights out at the end of a long day, I know what I want. And that's what I tried to do. Okay, I have a pop quiz for you. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Always ready. It is a two-part question. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read a quote, and then I will ask you the two questions together. Okay. The quote is, The real story of Northern Ireland exists in the gaps between the blanket terms and the binary opposites. This is something which the men and women who write well about this place have always understood. End quote. The question is, who wrote those lines? And part two is, was the author a Northern Ireland writer? Um, well, Alexander Poots wrote those lines. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> and so uh, the the second half of the question is, uh, no, Alexander Poots is an English writer who uh-huh. lives in Belfast. Okay, uh, yeah, so you're that's, not that's... adopting yourself into your uh, new home. Um, well... I'm a British citizen. I'm also an Irish citizen. I have an Irish passport, but I'm very much a reductionist, actually, when it comes to identity. I think if you want to find out where someone's from, ask them where they lived from the age of five to the age of 15. Mm, mm -hmm. And I know that's a horribly reductive way of putting it, but I think it's true. Yeah. And certainly from the accent down, I'm... I'm English. There is a history in Ireland, a, a rather a history I find toe-curlingly embarrassing, actually, of uh, of English people who have attempted to adopt an Irish persona, mm. having lived mm-hmm. here for a few years, and I just find it embarrassing. Right. Identity is not something that can be bought at a supermarket, you know. Right. Uh, okay. Last question. What does the writing of Northern Ireland that you've explored in this book, what do you think it can teach us about, and here I, I'm not sure if I should say about uh, Northern Ireland, the political entity or the cultural entity, or if I should just be broader and say, what can it teach us about life? Um, as an English person, I'm very suspicious of questions <laughs> about the meaning of life. or, or But... <laughs> I will say that it shows, and I know this sounds like a pat answer, but I I believe it to be true, that even under extraordinary duress, it is possible Mm. to create extraordinary works of art. Um, And also that it's okay to explore complexity without arriving at an answer. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that so so many of these writers, great service they've performed, whether it's Anna Burns or Seamus Heaney, is that they have really taken on, they've really dug deep 
and they've taken on the almost impossible task of trying to articulate the complexity and nuance of this place. And it's an extraordinary achievement that everyone would profit from knowing a little bit more about. Seamus Heaney, I think, said it was like moving like a double agent among Mm. the big concepts. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what he achieved in his poetry and and indeed in his criticism as well. But certainly as a poet, he theoretically, I think a lot of people wanted him to be rather more nationalist than than he ever was. I think he was probably a little bit too wry of a person to be seduced by the blandishments of one flag waver over another. But what he successfully did, and aptly using the metaphor of espionage as well, because of course Belfast then and now was absolutely crawling with Mm. spies of one kind or another. But what he succeeded in doing was looking at things from both sides uh, without ever really, I suppose, committing himself to the monolith of accepted political opinion. Mm. The book is called The Stranger's House, Writing Northern Ireland. Alexander Poots, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And finally today, our guest, Laura Lee, here to select a final book, to cap off a lifetime of reading. Okay, we're joined now by author Laura Lee, who has joined us a couple of times for a discussion of Oscar Wilde. Her books include Oscar's Ghost, The Battle for Oscar Wilde's Legacy, and Wild Knights and Robber Barons, The Story of Morris Schwaba. Laura Lee, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you. So this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can choose either a book that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. I think that if this is my last book, um, it would probably be poetry. Hmm. I tend to like a lot of books that talk about history or sociology or novels that put people in social context and history. But if it's the last thing, None of that is going to matter so much, you know, Mm. assuming I know it's the last one. Mm -hmm. And so I think I want something that's just enjoying language. So maybe Rumi or Rilke or Lorca or something like that, where Mm. you're just enjoying the sounds of the language. Who was the first poet you mentioned? I heard Rilke and Lorca, and I missed the first one. Uh, Rumi. Oh, Rumi, yes. So is it the other books that you tend to like, the histories and the sociology and the context and so on, do you feel like, because of the way this question is framed, it emphasizes for you that you use those books to kind of, for a purpose, You they're useful to you, they're knowledge that you have that you can then apply in some context later? I think that I'm always fascinated by different perspectives on the human experience and people trying to get along in society. Mm-hmm. So I think that if it's your last book, yeah. you're kind of releasing all of that, trying to be a human in the world. So I think, yeah, those kind of books help you try to navigate the world. Yeah. And the poetry, you'll be, do you feel like you'd be preparing your spirit that way? Yeah. I think language, you know, just sort of feeling. The play with language. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Where you're just playing with with the language. It's boiled down. It's like the it's almost like the closest thing we have to thought. Yeah, it's the music. It's literary music and that, you know, speaks to that emotional space inside. Ah, oh, literary music is such a beautiful way of of putting it. Laura Lee, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to my guest, Alexander Poots, for being here. His book is called The Stranger's House, Writing Northern Ireland. And my thanks to Laura Lee. You can find her books as well, Wild Nights and Robber Barons, The Story of Morris Schwabe. And the other one was, let's see, Oscar's Ghost, The Battle for Oscar Wilde's Legacy. Both are cracking good reads. Please remember to send us your voice memo on the subject of literary awe. Best way is probably to head on over to historyofliterature.com and click on the nice little tab on the right side of the website, which will let you record your audio that way. What books have made you feel bigger than your previous self? What works stopped you in your tracks and made you feel that you were in the presence of something transcendent. Let us know and don't tell us anything you wouldn't want shared with the world since I might run a few of these on the podcast. So no social security numbers or anything like that. No credit cards. Not not that you would, but you know what I mean. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.